Hey, it's Bill Simmons. The Ringer is very excited about our new podcast that went through a lot of name iterations. What'd you decide on, Larry Wilmore? Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. <laughs> what, what was the runner-up? Well, the Bill Simmons idea was, was it Lar Lar Land? <laughs> Lar Lar. <laughs> was that what it was? Lar Lar Land. Lar Lar. Where With the what? La- <laughs> you think people are going to subscribe to Lar Lar Land? <laughs> that joke was that it would be the worst <laughs> idea for a podcast. No, it was horrible. You don't want people thinking worst when they're No, I wanted you to have a good one. Yeah. This is a very good name. So what's going to be on this podcast? It's going to be me kind of uh, weighing in on some of the issues of the day with my audience. And then I'll be interviewing some really cool people during the podcast. Each week it'll be somebody different. Uh, sometimes with like culture, sometimes politics, sometimes sports, sometimes maybe an interest of mine, sometimes television. I've worked a lot in television. Yeah. We got Norman Lear coming up, Bernie Sanders, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So lots of great guests. Awesome. Welcome to the podcasting Thanks, world, Larry Wilmore. Subscribe to Larry Wilmore's podcast wherever. You get your podcasts. Hey, it's Brian Curtis here, editor-at-large of The Ringer. This is Channel 33, and this is our newish podcast where we talk about uh, stuff within the political sports zone. We have three quick segments here. First up, I'm going to have James Andrew Miller author of the great oral history of ESPN on whether ESPN is quote-unquote a liberal network. You've probably read about that on Twitter. Next up, the Ringer's very own Danny Chow and I are going to have a funeral for True Hoop, that oasis of basketball writing at ESPN that fell victim to the layoffs. And finally, John Lingan, a great writer and essayist, and I are going to talk about why Major League Baseball has so little social activism in the age of Trump. We'll try to come to up with a solution. All right, let's go. All right, first up, James Andrew Miller, author of Oral Histories of Saturday Night Live, CAA, and ESPN, for which he is the chief criminologist we have in the media. Jim, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I don't know if you heard about this, but Jason Whitlock wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal the other day. This may have come across your desk. I was, I was just reading, eating breakfast, reading, uh, you know, looking for some trickle-down economics tracks, and boy, ESPN in the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and he wrote... The channel has become too handcuffed by politics to protect its most experienced and loyal employees. It's a massive symbol of everything that fueled Donald Trump's bid for the presidency. So I think in any discussion of is ESPN a quote-unquote liberal network, there's a bunch of things that kind of get smashed together, arguments that get smashed together, and I want to actually ask you about a few of them. So one, is ESPN a liberal network? You know, look, are there liberals at ESPN? Yes. Are there conservatives? Yes. I just think that this whole this whole dialogue has just gotten mashed together. As you said, I mean, it's bizarre. I, I really don't understand. If you really take time to trace the pedigree of what people are saying, it, it doesn't add up. I mean, I did read the Whitlock piece, and he says that, um, you know, okay, yeah, there's, you know, expensive live sports and subscriber losses or whatever, but... Quote, what has truly impeded ESPN from overcoming its financial mistakes is the decade-long culture war. It lost a dead spent. So it, it reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where, like, uh, the mom-and-pop store, take Jer- you know, they closed down, and Elaine's saying, wait, it was mom-and-pop's theory and their plan to establish trust in the neighborhood for 40 years just so they could steal all of Jerry's sneakers? I mean, <laughs> this, I, this idea 
this idea that we're talking about significant, significant losses. ESPN had 100 million subscribers. Now they got 88. People are paying more than $7 a household. They spend an enormous amount of money on the NBA, Big Ten, NFL, on and on and on. And what their real problem is, is that they've lost a culture war to Deadspin. I mean, I listen, I have a lot of respect for Jason, and I think that, you know, back in the day, he was maybe justifiable in thinking that ESPN should have sued Deadspin for some of the stuff that they wrote about him. But, like, I'm sorry, at the end of the day, this, is, this just doesn't add up. Yeah, and it's two questions getting smashed together, right? Which is, one, is ESPN liberal? Is it more liberal in character than it perhaps was 20 years ago? And then the second one being... Does whatever its political character is, did that cause the layoffs two weeks ago, right? Or was that? Well, you know, kind of... every time I give a talk or, you know, speech or something, everybody in the, their Q and A session, and usually somebody says, you know, I can't believe ESPN fired Kurt Schilling because he's a conservative, <laughs> and just that question alone makes me carsick. Because here's the deal: it's like Kurt Schilling was not fired because he was a conservative. Kurt Schilling decided to say things that basically, I'm sorry, but Jason is at FS1 now. If Kurt Schilling had said certain things, the same things about his colleagues at FS1 that go against the heart of inclusiveness, which, by the way, is not something that's just particular to Bristol, Connecticut. I mean, this is, these are publicly held companies. This is, I mean... ESPN is part of Disney. The idea that in 2017, if you can, you know, if you decide to, you know, uh, denigrate your colleagues who may be Muslims or transgender or anything else, and this is all of a sudden a conservative issue? No, it's a workplace issue. And Jamie Horowitz would have fired him too. And Jason should ask Jamie. He should go into Jamie's office, sit down, and say, "Here are some of the things that um, Kurt Schilling said. What would happen if, you know, or Eric Shanks? What would what would happen if he said them here?" I'd be very surprised. I'd be very surprised. I mean, that parent company that Jason works for just, you know, um, said goodbye to several key employees. I, this idea that ESPN is doing this, and then somehow it equates to conservative. I mean, do you remember when Kurt said that Hillary Clinton should actually be buried under a jail? Right. Uh, Kurt Schilling went on baseball, Monday Night Baseball, as planned. Now, I mean, they talk to him because they don't want to do overly political, but this is this is getting crazy. <laughs> yes, and I and I think when you when you talk about FS1, by the way, I think there have been people that have come to executives there and said, "Let's make this into the Fox News of sports. Let's do what Fox News did to MSNBC and CNN." And the response has been absolutely not, because they want all sports fans. Uh, they, and so does ESPN. Yeah. I mean, there's another line in here. He said that um, Dead Space exposure helped ESPN, you know, uh, and ESPN sexually charged frat house atmosphere. And here's the key line. But it also extinguished the network's risk-taking culture and infused it with strict obedience to progressive political correctness. I think that's, you know, he mentions Mark Shapiro, and I think that's incredibly insulting to Mark Shapiro because the subtext is somehow if, you know, if Mark had stayed there, then this, this wonderful progressive, you know, political correctness would have still, would have, you know, it just it would have run wild. And Mark is running IMG right now. If, if anybody were to play any of these games at ING WME, Ari and Mark would, and Patrick, they would have them on a, on a bullet train out of there. 
I mean, what does he think is going on? I mean, what really happened was that a lot of, I mean, Skipper came in and he bought a lot of live product. And that's what made the moat around ESPN for years and years bigger. That's all. It's as simple as that. I mean, we're conflating so many different issues here. Yeah, and one, one other funny thing about the op-ed is that he says that Shapiro, are, when he's, what he characterizes as a risk-taking era in terms of programming, he lists some of the things, PTI, Skip Bayless and Colin Coward, Mike and Mike, the NBA package, the World Series of Poker. All of those risk-taking ventures are still part of ESPN, with the exception of Skip and Colin, whom ESPN labored mightily, did they not to keep? So if you think that's risk-taking... <laughs> It's still they, there. It's still ESPN. They, they, I mean, not only are they still there, they run about the flagpole every morning and salute them. I mean, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't turn their back. I mean, listen, Mark Mark Shapiro deserves enormous. Jason's right. He deserves enormous credit. He came in at a time when ratings were hemorrhaging, and he brought a whole new level of vitality and energy and creativeness uh, to, to the network, without a doubt. But to say that. They've turned their back on that. Is you know, as you point out, I mean, it just uh, it just doesn't doesn't fly. I mean, I I think I tweeted the other day that Senator Moynihan had an axiom: everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And uh, this is this is just just crazy. I mean, this this idea, by the way, inclusiveness, which is so important to John Skipper, and which he says to everybody: look, this is just the third rail here. Um, that's not a that's not a conservative issue or a liberal issue. I, I I mean, I don't think so because look, I have a lot of conservative friends who are who are very very inclusive or at least appreciate inclusiveness in the workplace. I mean, certainly conservatives don't want liberals to just own the idea that the that everybody should be treated fairly in the workplace. I don't I don't know any of my conservative friends who think that. Yeah. So somehow it's getting twisted into that and it's just wrong. And I don't think you can you can talk about this or have this argument without understanding how the political world has changed around ESPN, right? ESPN like any company is reacting to the way the world has changed. Barack Obama in 2008 ran for president being opposed to gay marriage, right? 4 years later he was the opposite. You know, I mean the world the world has changed so much in this idea, you know, there were certain things that maybe a company could not have come out and I don't know, pick sides seems like a strong way to put it, but pick sides on right. And we live in this. We live in a different universe today. And to, to not stand up for values like inclusiveness or civil rights or, or you know equal treatment or LGBT rights, I just I don't I don't understand what I don't understand what they would think ESPN would do in in the face of in the face of some of these things. I just don't I just don't understand. Or by that matter, twenty first century Fox. <laughs> there I you mean, go. Where, where is the outlier here in terms of ESPN? I mean, why? I look. I, I mean, I can always convict or quit with ESPN. It's a huge company, and there's many different facets to it, and every day is dynamic. So there are things that you can applaud them by uh, for, and you can criticize them for. And I, I actually enjoy both. But the truth is, to make them some sort of outlier here, where all of a sudden, um, you know. They are this liberal bastion because they have decided that inclusiveness and equality in the workplace is something that's really important to them. And so, and to make that seem like no other company is doing that, and therefore it's a liberal agenda. And then 
to go the step further, which is, I'm sorry, it's just whacked. The idea that that's what contributed to the layoffs, I, I, it just, you know, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. You can just let's, let's play deep throat and follow the money. It just doesn't make sense. Are those 12 million households that they lost? Those are people that are looking for a skinny bundle. Those are people like my mother who, you know, spends $7 a month on ESPN and never watches it. They're, they're getting rid of it. People don't want to pay for something they don't use anymore. ESPN is suffering for that. And they've been, and they're going to continue to suffer in some way until they figure out a way around it. And they're trying with the SEC network and they're trying with a host of other things. It may and may not be enough. But to like literally take that extra step and say, oh, yeah, that, that's why. It's like, it's, it's, just, it's just wrong. Where, as you've looked at it, where is, which, what is the event? Uh, that causes the liberal ESPN narrative to start. Is it Michael Sam kissing his partner on TV during the draft? What is what is the thing that launches uh, this whole strange well, thing? I mean, Michael Sam, that was a pretty big matzo ball. But I think that you know the truth is that Caitlyn Jenner. Here's the irony: so Caitlyn Jenner gets the ESPY award, the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage, and people say, "Oh my gosh." You know, this is this is ESPN becoming very, very liberal. Well, let's for a second just point out that Caitlyn Jenner is a conservative, which is kind of ironic in and of itself. But again, does this mean then that that only liberals recognize and tolerate and have appreciation and and want transgender people to have equality? I, I just, I again, I, I just know so many conservatives who. Don't think that they're conservatives because of their economic orthodoxies about lower taxes and getting government out of our lives, and you know they have a certain approach to foreign affairs, which they think is different than the Democrats. But this idea that all of a sudden, if you're, you know, if you celebrate or if you want to applaud Caitlyn Jenner for her transformation and her journey, then that makes you, you know, a whacked out liberal. Um, I think that's a dangerous slope for people to pursue. Yeah, um, but I think that's the big that's the biggest blip on the radar. I mean, Michael Sam was was there too. But and then the other thing, of course, is that they start to think that everybody who's on air is uh, on ESPN is liberal, which we know not to be the case. Um, a lot of the conservative voices at ESPN may not necessarily speak about their own opinions uh, in politics as as much as some of the other. But it's not like every day. You know, ESPN sounds like MSNBC. I, I mean, I, I literally challenged a guy in a Q&A um, after him. I said, please, let's go through it. Give me your examples. He said, well, you know, uh, Michael and Jamel are liberal. I said, okay, well, first of all, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But, you know, I watch the show from time to time. When was the last time that they literally spoke about something that, you know, he, well, he couldn't, you know, you couldn't come up with it. I mean, maybe they are, but that doesn't—that's not a de facto branding of the entire network. Yeah, and I and I think a part of this is too. We have access to these people's Twitter accounts now too. Can you imagine Keith Olbermann's Twitter account in the heyday of the Big Show Sports Center? I mean, he was going—if I remember correctly—he was going on ESPN's air and calling Arco Arena, where the Sacramento Kings played Greedy Oil Profits Arena, until the the Kings said, "Knock it off, or we take the highlights away." Right? I mean, this is. Part of it is we know more about these people. I think part of it is, as you say, the you know I, I would read the Caitlyn Jenner uh, thing as much as ESPN's infatuation with celebrity and famous people as having as kind of a statement about civil rights. 
I mean, I just think that's, you know, that, that's a oh, through that's line. Oh, really that's a really interesting take. But I think so many people forgot about the fact that Caitlin herself is a conservative. I mean, look, it, the people at ESPN, by the way, and there were a lot of them, that were talking about the NFL's uh, ratings troubles last season. And they were upset about the Colin Kaepernick issue because they believe that sports is a sanctuary, that when you turn on Monday Night Football, you want to get away from all the political talk and the coarseness of our, you know, our political uh, arguments in the, in the country. And so if anything, I think that there's been some, some effort on the part of, uh, of people at ESPN to make sure that sports is still sports. I mean, they they did they they believe the audience did not like the whole Kaepernick stuff, whether you're for it or against it, because it was bringing politics into that world, and that world they wanted to be separated from politics. Let's let's talk about for a second the deadspin piece of Whitlock's article. A few months ago, I wrote a piece about how I thought sports writing, sports writing, has become a more liberal profession than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I didn't say I don't think enough in there about how deadspin has not only carved out this kind of liberal clubhouse for sports writing, but put a lot of pressure on writers, uh, you know, by blowing them up if they have bad political takes, right? According to Deadspin, that is. But when Whitlock says that Deadspin has pushed ESPN to the left politically or made them more politically correct, I don't actually know of an example of that. I mean, it's certainly have, they've done a lot of reporting on ESPN. They've, they've made changes there. They've been, you know, effective at, at muckraking and things like that. But do you do you know of any evidence that Deadspin has had any any effect on ESPN's political character? In a word, no. I mean, part <laughs> of it is if you if you examine if you really deconstruct what Jason's saying in this op-ed, and you, you think about it, it's it's about ESPN making priorities about their workplace and establishing further guidelines about their workplace that is wholly independent of of Deadspin. I mean, Deadspin is a really interesting site. It has a pretty interesting batting average in terms of uh, provocative and compelling uh, stories. I think that there, it's clear that you know some of the people who have worked there, um, you know, are really really talented and have gone on, um, you know, to very very uh, you know established jobs in, in in journalism. I mean, this is this is not the junior varsity. But I'm sorry if you if there was never a dead spin. If there was never a dead spin, these things that Jason cites in the op-ed piece at, that happened at ESPN would have still happened at ESPN. And you know why? Because ESPN is part of Disney, and Disney is a public company. And in this day and age, public companies are supposed to operate in certain ways. That's not because they're being pushed by a website. It's because that's what the public and that's what society expects of them now. And so if you are an employee at Johnson & Johnson or General Electric or 21st Century Fox and you say some of the things that Kurt Schilling said, you're going to get suspended or you're going to get fired. And it has nothing to do with some column that somebody at Deadspin may have written to put pressure on it. If there's one place, I, I, I'm sorry, it's just I, I don't think that I, I can't imagine John Skipper waking up in the morning and uh, reading Deadspin to say, oh, yeah, that's that's got to be part of my agenda now. And, oh, yeah, OK, they've really influenced me now. I mean, if there's one place where John Skipper has really made a commitment, uh, I mean, besides buying a lot of live sporting rights. It is on the way ESPN conducts itself and the way employees talk about each other, 
tolerate each other, care for each other. And I think people there know that if you decide to do something and say something that's um, disrespectful to a colleague, uh, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. And I can even look at the specifics and say, you know, when when ESPN hired Will Kane, conservative commentator, used to work for Glenn Beck's The Blaze uh, Network, you know, and criticized him for his views. I think it was on global warming at the time. Will Kane it just yesterday re-signed with ESPN for a new contract, right? Deadspin was uh, all over, that. Yeah, Deadspin was I, all over Skip and Colin and ESPN offered them millions and millions of dollars to please stay at ESPN, right? So I think, you know, that's... And, and by the way, you know who else signed yesterday? I mean, I called it just another Red State Monday for ESPN, but you know who else signed? Tib Tebow. Um, <laughs> right. I don't think you're going to be seeing him at uh, any Hillary Clinton rallies. or you know, <laughs> seen him. I, I, It's just, you know, at some point it just becomes a joke. Uh, I, I, I just don't get it. And there's something more elemental underlying this. I mean, when, when you, if you tell, if you're saying to, people, to the world, ESPN is a liberal network, of course you're signaling to conservative sports fans or moderate sports fans or people like you say who don't want their politics and sports mixed up. That's not the network for you. But I think there's also this other thing, which, which you're saying, Colin Coward told me this once. It was fascinating to me. He said part of his the way he is a sports guy, a talk show host, a pundit, whatever you want to call it, is everybody's lying to you but me. And so if you, Jason Whitlock or Clay Travis or whomever, say ESPN is in the thrall of liberal orthodoxy, right? They're pushing a political agenda. You are saying I'm the honest guy, right? I'm telling you the full story. Those guys over there, that Dan Lebitard, all those guys you know, on that network – they're not honest with you. I'm telling you the full story. I'm giving you the truth. And I think that's a powerful, you know, advertisement for oneself. And, and I think that's part of what's going on here, too. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why ESPN wanted to keep Colin and wanted to keep Skip, as you referred to earlier. I mean, by the way, there's one other head-scratching line, no offense, because Linda Cohn is a, you know, dedicated uh, veteran at ESPN, but... She says, the old school viewers were put in a corner and not appreciated with all these other changes. Um, I have no idea what that really means, but in the context of firing Kurt Schilling and that there's this, I, I just don't understand what she's, what she's using as evidence. Yeah, the word old school is doing a lot of work in that sense. One last one for you, Jim. You're an ESPN executive, and let's say you don't believe that liberal ESPN, quote unquote, is a thing. Uh, is a real thing, but it's out in the universe. It's a stigma. It's being pushed by your competitors and by other people. What, if anything, worries you about that? Look, I think that they have they have more serious problems, and I think that you gotta you just gotta continue to do what you believe is right, and you gotta stick to a game plan that hopefully has um, is the is the product of a lot of thought and a lot of analysis. And you can't be running after everybody on Twitter or social media or, you know, op-eds that really don't um, that really don't have a lot of evidence behind them. You have to focus. I mean, their problem right now, I mean, it, for, for people like you and me, we read, you know, this and people talk about, oh, my gosh, ESPN is getting liberal. And, you know, there have been some pieces in, you know, in, on the networks about it. But it's in the larger scale of things. This is not one of ESPN's biggest problems. And I think that they should just continue. They have to continue their commitment to workplace equality and to inclusiveness. That's just 
There's, there's no doubt about it. You're not going to let somebody all of a sudden start to say stuff just so you can um, so you can avoid criticism. And hopefully you'll get a chance to point out to people that the things that you're doing in, about the workplace are not about politics. They're about the workplace. Um, but, you know, they really – they have to. They have to. I would, if I was an ESPN executive, I'd focus just on the best programming, the best financial model, the best arrangements that are going to safeguard the network's future, and uh, and not even kind of and, and not try and uh, get into a whole big thing. I certainly wouldn't change anything in terms of well, let's do this because then it'll make people think that we're really not liberal. I mean, that's just uh, there's just no end to that. Jim Miller, thanks for joining the Liberal Conspiracy today. Really appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right, next up, Danny Chow. Hello, Brian. How are you? I'm, I'm great. So we've just been through the CSPN layoff carnage, and I feel we're sort of having funerals for every part, every person and every right. part that has has gone away. And one thing we may not have had a, a proper funeral for yet is True Hoop. Uh, True yes. Hoop. Yeah, <laughs> True Hoop has a very, very close uh, place in my heart. Uh, it was a... Well, for, first of all, it, it was a blog on, on ESPN. Uh, it, I think it started in 2005 and was later acquired uh, by ESPN in 2007. Uh, it was created by Henry Abbott, who was uh, a longtime editor at ESPN, just a very, very smart man who who tried to push uh, NBA coverage at ESPN to, you know, you know, start breaking, you know, smarter, smarter news, trying to fix the game and, and, and all of that. Sure. Um, but what I remember about True Hoop and what will always be the most important thing for me is how it, it kind of started this community maybe even before the the real rise of of NBA Twitter which is you know just the you know the 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 leading example of you know how fans engage with sports now um there was one thing that he did um every day it was called the the daily bullets and he would – it was basically a post that was just a link dump of all of the smart things that he'd read um, every day. And it, it ranged from, you know, columnists from leading newspapers to just obscure blogs um, from people you'd never heard of before. And this is cutting edge for its time. Exactly. Someone reads the internet yeah. and gives you the good links mm -hmm. in the pre-Twitter age. Just – yeah, and, and that, was, that was a really cool way of – as a reader and as, you know, NBA junkies going to the site and finding out that there are other people on the internet publishing their thoughts that think exactly like you, that think, you know, in a way that you couldn't really talk about, like in a barbershop discussion or something, you know, finding fellow nerds, finding fellow, you know, wordsmiths. It, it was a really cool way of, of realizing that there was a, a community here um, of, of people who thought, similarly and it, it kind of grew from there um w one of the cool things that henry was able to create was the espn true hoop network was which was a loose network of, of 30 team-based blogs so e each each team had their own um affiliate blog and around that were, were a bunch of general 
interest um, NBA blogs, but they all they all covered the sport from a, a fan's perspective. But you know, Henry was really good about finding people who were smart and finding people who wanted to challenge the way that these these teams were being covered. Because obviously, you there's you know the the regular old timey kind of newspaper perspective, and then there were you know people who wanted to get into the analytics of things, who wanted to get into stronger narratives, sure. stuff like that. You know, and I think it's funny because people often ask, it's like, what, why has NBA writing blown up in the way it has? And one thing I say is that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there was no such thing. There was right. no line, right? Somebody covered the NBA, and it was written about in every newspaper in the country, but it wasn't like the NFL and the MLB were the two big jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, and there wasn't like it wasn't this kind of thing where, well, if I want to be a really big NBA writer or have a national following or even, you know, go really local on my team and and do all these things, there was not a crowd of people waiting to do that. It was the right. lowliest big job at a newspaper. Right. <laughs> so into this vacuum, you could you know you could do a lot of things, right? You could have it be like the NFL kind of writing, which is a lot of it's kind of soulless and you know and hard charging, right? right. Or what you're talking about is you could fill that vacuum with a bunch of weird people. And then I mean weird in the best possible <laughs> way, right? People that are coming at it in their own strange, unique, local, bloggy sort of way. Right. And and something that I, I hit on a lot in my writing is that there's something special about basketball in, in watching the NBA in that, you know, these players aren't hiding behind anything. They're not hiding behind helmets. They're not hiding behind hats. It, you, you see these players and their charisma kind of comes off you know through the screen and it it felt like a a way it it felt like something that a lot of us weirdo writers could kind of relate to and and kind of attach ourselves to certain players and that's definitely how I got into sports writing I I didn't know this was a thing I was just (laughs) a you know a, a bored college freshman who um somehow stumbled upon true hoop and free darko and all of these other weird NBA websites and just kind of went from there. So on ESPN, True Hoop becomes mm-hmm. kind of a larger brand right. in a way. And first you have the recruitment of actual beat writers, right? So we're now moving a lot of people out of the blog, loose blogging network into the title of more or less formal beat writers, right? right. To cover all these teams. Henry is huge in recruiting uh, those those kind of people. And then you get this kind of cool thing late in the game, which is the True Who Presents magazine pieces. Right. And and this was always kind of Henry's ambition. He wanted to pursue these stories on a more, you know, wide scale kind of long form type um, presentation. So, yeah. And I would think of like the big some of the big ones being Ethan Strauss on Steph Curry's shoe deal. Yeah. Which that, is like a huge. gigantic mm-hmm. NBA story. Kevin Hardovitz on the referee Billy Kennedy, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was branded as a true hoop yep. thing. You know, which well, is a, a lot f- of Jackie McMullen's uh, pieces as well. Yeah, yeah. And pieces that are, how would you describe very, I would say like socially conscious. Yeah. You know, some straight basketball-y stuff, mm-hmm. but a lot of things that are very socially conscious that are interested in stuff like how players sleep. Right. You know, how the schedule, Tom Haberstroh wrote about a lot about this, how players, how the schedule kind of grinds them in the dust, how players get laid in 2017, I think was a Haberstroh <laughs> yeah, yeah. special. The tinderization right. of, of the NBA. That they yeah. were they were both getting laid and getting a lot of sleep, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was kind of an amazing story. But 
that strikes me as part of True Hoop too. It's yeah, just, it was it was expanding their the purview of what basketball discourse could be. You know, um, I think before True Hoop and before True Hoop really introduced us to these differing voices and these very singular voices, um, we thought about basketball a certain way. Um, you know, Henry was was very big in bringing in guys like John Hollinger, who you know revolutionized um, analytics for a while, and that that was really big in kind of, and it, it was almost like an enlightenment period for for basketball writing, for sports writing. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So the other thing that's really interesting for us, the so two of us sitting at this table, is that they were their own little walled garden within ESPN, hmm. mm-hmm. a little oasis, you might say. similar to the way we were. And what's interesting about that to me is I don't want to horn in on anybody else's funeral. We already had ours. It was, it's probably still going in some corner of the internet, but should be noted that I'm wearing a Grantland hat right now. Wearing a Grantland hat as we're having this discussion. But what was interesting is like our old shop, True Hoop had a lot of people who did not dream of growing up and working for ESPN. They really liked working at ESPN under certain circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. And it also, I won't say it existed in opposition to ESPN, but it certainly existed in opposition to a lot of the larger culture and a lot of the larger way things were done there. And that had to be some of the appeal as a reader and everything, similar to the way ours was. It was like, this is really different. This is moving to its own beat. It doesn't feel like it's being that Bristol is programming everything. Right. It has a kind of a funky sort of beat of its own. Yeah, so er- early on when, when the network was still around, I, I mean, there, there's, there's such a long list of, of alumni who came out of the True Hoop network and became mega successful. I, I mean, Zach Lowe, you know, who many would say is the best basketball writer writing right now, uh, came from the Celtics blog on, on True Hoop. Uh, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss came from Warriors World. Um, there are plenty of people who work for CBS, Sports Illustrated, um, ESPN Now. Um, I, I was a True Hoop alumni, <laughs> alumnus. <laughs> you um, were birthed by True Hoop? Yeah. And, and so when, so obviously we've, you know, the True Hoop network has, has cultivated all of these great voices. Um, and w- once it kind of became more formalized, once, um, you know, the, the network kind of died because it uh, the idea was always to find a way to monetize it, but it just wasn't very feasible. And at the first sign of resistance, Bristol basically kind of cut the cord on that. Um, and so when it became more of a, a focused affair with with Ethan, with um, Kevin Arnovitz writing majority of these long, great features, yeah, um, yeah, it, it really did feel like it was it was a smart smart way of you know matching both you know the the smarts and and the the writing ability of these great writers with really high concept ideas that you wouldn't otherwise see um in kind of you know the the gamer area of of coverage sure yeah and i heard from people inside there that said you know the told me it's like this was a little bit like Grantland. This was kind of our version of Grantland right. going away. Not just because it was sad and because a lot of people lost their jobs, which really sucks, but also this thing we built, this culture within yeah. a culture that we built, yeah. you know, is kind of gone now. And True Hoop TV and the True podcasts that they were doing uh, were just so wildly popular. They they were able to bring in a, a bunch of 
you know, very interesting characters uh, to talk about, you know, how they saw the sport. And it, it was very, very similar to what we were trying to create at Grantland. Um, and similarly, it, it felt like a very intimate connection with these writers and these personalities. Like, it, it felt like, you know, just... Uh, they were your pals. Right, a, a living room discussion. Right, rather than, right. you know, the, that beat writer guy on the internet that they were your pals that you you knew a lot about them in addition to basketball stuff. Right. So what ESPN's doing, reportedly, is bringing in Woj to be their basketball guy. And and the basketball, their basketball universe will revolve around him, again, reported with a bunch of people that he bring, he's bringing over from the vertical to replace some of the people we're talking about right. here. How, how do we keep basketball writing weird? You know, there's that old bumper sticker, keep Austin weird. You know, how do we, how, how on the internet? Has it been, was True Hoop and Henry's vision so successful that that will keep on keeping on no matter what happens at ESPN, do you think? It's interesting because the True Hoop network, depending on how you saw it, was or was not successful. I mean, it launched the careers of, of a lot of, you know, current writers who, you know, have a lot of clout in, in this kind of bubble that we have. But at the same time, you know, they were trying to make this a real thing, a real money-making thing, and that just completely blew up in their faces. And so I... I I don't know if if there is a, a real route in in terms of keeping it weird. Like at, at a certain point, all of these blogs, you know, they're they're created by people who have you know main gigs and and actual day jobs. Happily for them, yeah. Right. So like <laughs> at, at a certain point, it, it just wasn't feasible for for them to continue this when it wasn't making any money. And so I, I feel like in the last couple years, in the last five years or so, um, the, the whole idea of, of having these independent blogs, it, it's, it's died down a bit because, the, because of what ESPN and places like SB Nation were able to create out of these team blogs, you had a sense that maybe through working at one of these blogs or writing at one of these blogs, you'd have an opportunity to become a real capital J journalist. And there just aren't that many jobs there. And so at a certain point, people realize that, you know, it's kind of a dead end. Right. So I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I would hope that The Ringer is one of those bastions for, you know, weirdo writing and weirdo <laughs> opinions. Um, but Jud Judging by the two people at this table, I think. I think it's safe. <laughs> the legacy is safe there, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, the weirdo writing also has, has kind of trickled into the mainstream too. So I, I don't think we have to search very far to see the influences of Henry and to see the influences of Free Darko or, or other, other weirdo blogs like that in just common sports writing now. Yeah. And, and I think that's really cool. Uh, how much weirder can we get? I, I have no idea, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I'd like to think there there's some DNA in, in the, the discourse today. Yeah, we are all true hoop networkers now. Yeah. That's the best <laughs> legacy of all. Danny Chow, thanks for doing this. Of course, thank you. Hitting in the three hole, John Lingen. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and now you're writing a baseball column. For the Canadian magazine Hazlitt, who says B-Writing is dead? John, welcome. 
very much, Brian. Appreciate it. So your first column was called A Season of Reckoning for a, quote, white man sport, those quotes belonging to uh, Adam Jones. Uh, we have athlete activism now in the NFL. We have it in the NBA all the way down to Greg Popovich giving a lecture on white privilege. Why is there little to no activism in Major League Baseball? Well, I think it's built into the sport itself. You know, I think uh, is watching for the first month. I'm I'm always intrigued uh, watching some of these big highlight reel plays and the sort of uh, the culture within baseball. Is a guy will lay out for a huge catch and then pop right up and just you know make the two out sign like nothing just happened. And uh, I don't think that there's really an incentive for anybody to share or reveal anything personal whatsoever. Um, in researching that first piece, though, I think there's, you know, there's some more, you know, uh, some, some more specific reasons to baseball, one of which being, I think that the very diversity uh, of baseball clubhouses and, you know, Major League Baseball as an institution sort of prohibits it. You know, you have uh, people from many different races, uh, sort of many different countries and cultures. And, you know, I've read some things that sort of highlight the fact that that can have a chilling effect. You know, if you have that many different points of view, it's not a great idea to sort of uh, start a political conversation in your clubhouse or uh, in the dugout. That's interesting. So you have the prospect from the the Dominican Republic and you have the guy from rural Nebraska, and it's part of what makes baseball really exciting. But then at the same time, it makes it dangerous because you, you figure any political discussion will just go off the rails so nobody says anything. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the... Um, it was interesting. I, I I pulled that one quote from Adam Jones because, you know, it was one of the few comments like that that I can remember happening at least over the last few years. And, you know, obviously Jones has been at the at the center of one of the most racially charged incidents uh, this season so far, uh, last week in Boston when he was uh, purportedly, you know, called the N-word and had peanuts thrown at him and that kind of thing. And, you know, what was interesting about that to me wasn't so much that uh, it happened because a lot of, a few black athletes, including C.C. Sabathia, came forward and said they've experienced similar types of incidents in Boston. The, the interesting thing there was the fact that Jones spoke about it in public. Like, that is the odd that is the odd thing about that figure. You know, uh, the example that I gave in that, that essay was also about Adrian Gonzalez, who took a small stand last uh, fall during the playoffs when he refused to stay in a Trump-owned hotel. And apparently, uh, he didn't make a big deal out of this, and it was only it only came forward because you know a Dodgers beat writer re- you know revealed it on a blog or something like that. But he and and when he was asked about it, he gave all the sort of requisite things he had to say. He didn't want to make a political statement. There's just there's just no culture of that kind of activism or even discussion in the MLB, from what I can tell. Yeah, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when Arizona enacted those draconian anti-immigrant laws. And baseball right. is, of course, sending half of its <laughs> half of its players to Arizona for spring training, you know, that yeah, spring. And, you know, it was, you, you could find a couple of people to really go out and talk about it. And I believe Adrian Gonzalez said something and then really took it back because he didn't want to go down that, this path similar to the way he did with the Trump Hotel. But it was really hard to find anybody to talk about. 
And you know, here here they were in Arizona. I mean, it was it was not a, you know, it was not a thing that was some kind of you know, a problem that was in some faraway place. It was something they were you know could have been confronting every day, every time they went out to eat. I mean, Jones Jones is a perfect example. And again, I'm going to focus on him obviously because he had this incident. Because I'm an O's fan, but you know, he is by all accounts like the absolute model sort of citizen ball player. You know, he is a he is active in his community in Baltimore. Uh he gives I believe mostly to the uh the girls and boys club, boys and girls club. And you know, he has tailgates uh outside Ravens games that are also fundraisers and has done more than any other player to sort of build connections between those two teams. And on top of all that, you know, he happens to be essentially the captain figure on the Orioles. And even he, <laughs> like, you know, there is, uh, there's constantly, I mean, it's, it's, it's gone down a little bit over the last few years, but, you know, a couple of years ago, you would still find fans complaining about, you know, he chewed gum and blew bubbles while he played. You know what I mean? There's just like no, any, any degree of sort of personalized, you know, uh, activity or, you know, perceived calling attention to oneself is just so frowned on, frowned upon in baseball. I mean, I, I think it's more than other sports, although, you know, we don't have to get into comparison, but, um, you know, with just sort of the day in, day out, 162 game season, everything is just put on the back of I'm just here to play for my team. I'm just here to, you know, support my my guys. I'm leaving it all on the field. There's just really no, there's no incentive for a player to to do anything beyond that. Yeah, as we're reminded every time somebody flips a bat. The um the other reason I was thinking when when we say why doesn't baseball have any activism, the old slur about baseball players is that a lot of them don't go to college and they come straight out of high mm-hmm. school and they're just, you know, for all of us, even people that spend a year in college, right? It's a place where you learn a lot of stuff and you learn a lot about, you know, activism just by walking through whatever quad you're walking through, right? And you just learn a lot mm-hmm. about the world and that baseball players, you know, through no fault of their own because they're they're smart to take the money when they're 18, if only football players could do the same thing or basketball players. But they go straight to the pros and you know a lot of them just haven't really and they go as you point out in your in your piece to really really small towns on their way to the pros and then suddenly they right. wind up in this major league locker room and they just never really thought about this stuff all that much yeah this was one of my favorite things to write about and and research a little bit about for that piece was the idea not only that uh you know the minor league farm system is so much more rural than almost any sporting you know league i can think of in the united states uh but also for the guys that you know many of them don't go to four year colleges many of them go to these sort of two year junior colleges and those tend to be in really tucked away places too and that's it's not only you know, quote-unquote, homegrown players who do that. You know, Bautista uh, went to uh, a junior college, and many other immigrant players do this as well. But these guys go to these little, like, 2,500, 3,000-person campuses that are junior colleges, but also sort of baseball factories with these pipelines into the minor leagues. And they play for these places in, you know, I I don't want to be condescending at all, but they're, you know, they're, they're far more 
rural and middle of nowhere than any of the places where pro teams play. You know, all the major league baseball teams are in major cities and, you know, or perhaps suburbs in a, in a few counts, but in like, you know, metropolis type areas. And in the meantime, by the time guys arrive there, they could have played in, you know, Peoria or much smaller places for, you know, four, five, six, sometimes many more years. So that is like a sort of unseen component, I think, to baseball culture. It's not only that we have a, you know, a, a cultural diversity, a nationalistic diversity of like people playing from Asia and South America, but, you know, the people that are in the league, I think there's a really great regional diversity, even of people's experiences and what they've seen in the United States by the time they reach the MLB. How much of this, too, is the fact that Spanish-speaking baseball players just remain out of reach of the vast majority of sports writers, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of being able to walk into a locker room and have a conversation with those guys that doesn't involve an interpreter? I mean, I would have to say it, it's, it, that has to have a huge effect. I mean, just imagine, you know, what what would be different um, if, you know, more beat writers, more national sports writers were bilingual, um, you know, and uh, as this, this becomes an even bigger issue as, you know, more Asian players come in as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that that has to play a huge part. I mean, I, I know for a fact that, like, you know, even – the uh, the lack of racial diversity among English-speaking sports writers has been cited by a few different black players as one reason that they, you know, uh, feel perhaps less comfortable speaking their minds or something like that. Um, so, you know, any type of diversity in that way I think would be great because I think it would allow people to ask questions. I think it would, you know, it would just expand the possibilities of what, you know, I know this is not the right term any longer, but what locker room talk is, you know, yeah. it would just expand the idea of like, what do you talk to a baseball player about after a game like that? You know, I, I, any, any way we can get to expand the number of topics that we're addressing in that context, I think would be great. Well, and I think it's also the low key conversation off the record conversation you have with these guys, right? Because you can talk right. to you can talk to these guys if you don't speak Spanish. You can talk to these guys, but it's a very formal exchange, right? And you can't do what you can do with another athlete, which is just sidle up to their locker and say, "Let's just talk for a minute," right? And and that mm-hmm. leads to a kind of rapport, and then you can build a story out of that. I grew up on the other side of the uh, American League from you, uh, rooting for the Rangers, and okay. you know, there was this. <laughs> incredibly bad tradition of whenever whenever Ruben Sierra or Pudge Rodriguez or Juan Gonzalez would come to town, you'd hear sports writers and radio guys go, gee, why doesn't that guy make a better effort to learn English? You know, And these yeah. are from writers who never made any effort to learn anything. And I just, I'm, this is just to me the great shame of sports writing that you could have, you know, that many. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to indict anybody. And there's certainly been good stories this year about like talking to players from Venezuela, for instance, about what they think of, you know, con- deteriorating conditions in their home country. But that to me is, has got to be a driver of some of those. Especially because the, the human drama of baseball, 
you know, is so informed by the fact that these guys have such variety in their backgrounds. You know, there was incredible reporting that came out of uh, L.A. and elsewhere when, you know, the sort of Yasiel Puig phenomenon happened a few years ago. And, you know, talking about, you know, I, I didn't know much about what the realities of you know, the Cuban baseball system was and like how what, what those kinds of players had to do to, to get here and, you know, how the leagues were run down there. And uh, and then, you know, there was a bit more attention paid to it, of course, last year with uh, with the death of Jose Fernandez. But, you know, if you if you want to talk about just, as I say, the human drama of, of sports and, you know, what sports mean in a global context, what they mean in terms of, you know, a product that America sells and a reason why people come here, understanding some of the backstories of these Latin American and Central American players, I think, is is essential. And, you know, I think we saw that, too, uh, with the death of Jordano Ventura over this past uh, season. It was uh, there was some great reporting by the, the Kansas City baseball writers um, sort of going down to his village in the Dominican Republic and talking about the life he had down there, which was just in, incredibly complex. You know, it was just this, you know, he, he had an uncle who owned a store that he was supposed to inherit, and he was giving money to his uncle to keep the store going, and he had a girlfriend who was connected to, you know, possible crime families. And, you know, it's not just the exploitative sort of, uh, you know, grisly component of it. Like, this is a fascinating thing to be able to watch a sport on your couch and know that, you know, the people playing it went through these things to get to where they are and I think it's a it's one of the things that I find fascinating about baseball and I think the 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 better we become at understanding that and reporting on that I think the the greater service we will do to the game itself because it's a huge part of what the game is now one last thing John before I let you go the let's imagine a Colin Kaepernick figure emerges in baseball right Somebody who says, I'm going to talk about police violence or some, you know, component of the Trump administration. I'm going to go after it. I'm not worried. I'm, I'm all in. Can you imagine this guy talking about this for 162 games? I mean, remember what it was like for Kaepernick, who had like one media availability during the week and then got asked about it, you know, like maybe after a game in the locker room or something. I mean, that's a lot to talk about. And I just can't, you know, for somebody... Just because everybody would want to write that story, everybody would want to would want to go in, and a lot of well-meaning reporters, right, want to go in and talk about right. that thing. But I, I just can't imagine somebody keeping that up over a 162 game season. It's just mind blowing. No, I, I can't see it either. You know, and it's the same reason why you know there's not a a, a Popovich figure as well among among the coaches because, it, like I say, I think that the. Um, just that day in, day out, that that sort of nonstop, that ceaselessness of the baseball schedule just does sort of work against these kinds of stands. You know, it's just it, for the first mark, it would be exhausting and a distraction. And you know, like for example, if if someone decided I'm not going to stand for the pledge or something, or not for the pledge, but I'm not going to stand for the anthem, and. Uh, like you say, doing that, you know, a dozen times in a year, 16 times a year, 
is one thing. Doing it 10 times that many, you know, like, you know, doing it 25 times a month for six months. <laughs> all across just America. A totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah all, in all cities. Yeah, it's just a completely different type of thing. And that's why, you know, I think that the whatever the version of Kaepernick is going to be will have to be a little bit more subtle than that, you know. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't think that he would consider himself to be volunteering for it, but, you know, Jones' experience in Boston, I think, is one thing. You know, he he did not make a big stand necessarily so much as just talk about something when asked and, you know, when when a microphone was in front of him. It wasn't a... It wasn't a garish display in any way. He was just sort of using a platform to to call something out, and he didn't stay on it. And he brought forth a lot of other players who backed him up, and he brought forth a lot of discussion in the media, and he sort of forced some level of reckoning, I suppose, among Boston fans who very kindly stood for him the following game. Um but I think that might be the kind of thing we're we're talking about, and I would love for you know that for there to be a Hispanic equivalent of that if it were to come you know to pass that there's you know something to comment on from the Trump administration. But again, like notable with Jones that he didn't comment per Kaepernick, he didn't comment on schools, he didn't comment on gun violence or police violence or Black Lives Matter. He commented only on something that happened on the field, uh, which I think is just, you know, so reflective and, you know, uh, indicative of of how these discussions are going to happen in the MLB. Yeah, and some horrible act that was as ancient and awful as the stuff that happened to Jackie Robinson. John Lingen, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it very much, Brian. Thanks again. Thanks hugely to James Andrew Miller, to Danny Chow, to John Lingan. Uh, We'll be back soon. And listen to all the other great stuff on Channel 33. See ya.